Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Carrie's Connoisseurs today. I have got with me in my studio, not in my studio, via Riverside, which we'll tell you about in a minute. I've got Anthony James Hamilton Russell. Anthony, hello, my darling. How are you? Carrie, I'm very well, thanks, on this beautiful premature spring Friday. I know. Well, we're going to talk about the weather. We're going to talk about prematurity, juvenility. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I caught up with you in Johannesburg last week. Yes. At a tasting at the Saxon of some of your new vintages, which we'll also talk about. And I just thought, kindred spirits, twin flames, I have to phone my boyfriend. We have to catch up. And that's what we're doing. So there's no real agenda and we're just going to roll and talk as it happens because, as we said earlier, let's fill them in. And Anthony and I have been cracking juvenile jokes for the last half an hour whilst our respective techies have been trying to get the two of us familiar with this recording program that we use. This Riverside's actually very good, and I have to tell you, it does wonderful things for me, but somehow... It's every time I'm involved with somebody around about my own age that we can't manage <laughs> to get this thing up and running. Do you think, do you think that there's something sort of genetically, um, truncated of people who were born in the sixties? No, I, I think what it is is I think it's a conspiracy by Gen Z and millennials to make boomers <laughs> feel inadequate. <laughs> I know, because we did so well at everything else. Yes. At, we did. At doing, I mean, if, if, if you read all the press, we've been the baddies that have got all the goodies for ourselves at the expense of the next generations. I but know. If you really think about it, they spend half their time on devices that were created by boomers. By us. And technology <laughs> was created by boomers. I know. <laughs> so we just Do you know what I think? Do you know what I think happened? I think that there were a handful of us who were like really, really clever. The rest of us were just bludgeoned into submission. We were quite disciplined. We went, yes. we skidded slightly west, come our sort of 18, 19, 20, 21. Sometimes it was a bit of sex and drugs and rock and roll and stuff. And then we skidded yes. back to the middle and made big businesses and did everything that we had to do. I think we had a nice balance of of um, East and West. What do you think? Well, I agree. I think what is the purpose of someone who's not completely tech-savvy or grew up just knowing which button to press? I, I <laughs> like to think that if your thought process is guided by the way software works, um, that software and the way it works is designed by somebody somewhere. And I think... Mm. Uh, our minds are possibly a little bit more freewheeling and capable of thinking out of um, a controlled route. And if you think about it with certainly chat, GBT and various things, every bit of knowledge is available to everyone at their fingertip. So what can we do And um, other than that? And that's insight. It's a way of just having an intuition or an insight into very complex data which goes beyond just an assembly of information. And um, I'm I agree pleased. with you. Yeah, if you said we're east or west, I'm pleased to be one or the other of them. But uh, it's pretty much all we've got left. We theoretically should be dead once we stop having children <laughs> or, or looking after them. I don't think we children. should be having children. <laughs> we, we shouldn't be having children in the first place. Oh. <laughs> there are people way older than me that have had them, but I'm, I'm not sure that's advisable. But w what I'm basically saying is, is possibly the only reason to keep someone alive beyond that kind of age is counsel and advice and experience. So if we're not applying that, we're useless. <laughs> well, I think, I think that it's quite, it's quite unfortunate <clears throat> if you really evaluate it because – I've always had this theory, and, and somebody pipped me to the post when they made that Benjamin Button movie, because I thought that was a brilliant movie. Yes. Um, and I do think we should live our lives backwards, because there's nothing more insufferable than a child 
who is born completely and utterly stupid and governs the world through its parents because its parents are too scared to smack it or whatever. So they've got nothing to add. They've got nothing to contribute until they're much bigger. But they dominate conversations and they dominate, you know, dinner parties. And they really do need to be locked in the cellar until they're 21-ish, I think. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a slightly different kind of version of parenting. I remember... Uh, three of my four daughters, the other one was too young, all sitting up in the bath together one evening, and I walked up to them and I said, girls, what do you say if anybody ever smacks you? And they were designed to say by rote, you'll be hearing from my lawyers in the morning. <laughs> I've, I've only ever shouted at my children once when they were fighting in the car. and I at one That's point, probably because their mother smacked them. You were the good cop. Not not in my recollection at all. It was just very much not that type of thing. Yeah, listen, I'm not into violence. I don't know. This might be, this is more of a psych, this is more of a therapy session than a wine session. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get to the wine bit in a minute. I I do think sometimes a cruel word can have a more lingering negative effect than um, an emotive smack. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I think temperamentally I'm, I'm much more likely to live, deliver a blow with words and I'm never, ever do it physically. Yes, me too. I, it's funny you say that. I mean, I had a, a mother with a very vicious left hand and a hectic ivory hand, bone handle, hairbrush, and a father, Ouch. and a father with a, with a cutting tongue. And I would far rather have had the ivory handled hairbrush because the cutting tongue is is bad i'm gonna have to go away and think about that but i I would like to believe that jail has got a higher percentage of people that were not spared the rod than people that were reasoned with Mm. (laughs) i i we'll have to have we should put a panel together actually and we could i do believe in the odd smack but we'll talk about that later (laughs) anthony (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we don't, and don't even rise to what that will move swiftly on. Anthony, <laughs> 1981, your father bought Hamilton Russell. And I met Tim once or twice. Um, he was an amazing man. You're a lot like your father in many ways and a lot not like him in many other ways. He was a visionary, and um, Hamilton Russell is one of our first growths, if we are allowed to steal that that phrase, but it is definitely. It has an impeccable pedigree. You took it over, and in true sort of Tim fashion, I think you you were desperately trying to put all the stuff into the toiletry bag and draw pull the drawstring on the top because he was he was so visionary and and there was so much about Hamilton Russell that was just latent. Latently explosive. It's a gorgeous place. It's fabulous terroir. It's pretty, pretty, pretty. The soils are just right for what you're doing. But somehow, he didn't have your... He had everything except your operational ability. You've, you've turned Hamilton Russell into a haven of deliciousness. The wines I tasted last week are so pure. And as I said in my email to you, there's such an there's such a clear magic and chemistry that exists in your current team. There's you, there's Olive, your wife, who's just been amazing. There's Emil, who is he's just so devoid of any drama and so oozing with talent. And then there's Talita, who sort of whips you all into shape as as often as she needs to. It's working. The wine is delicious. Um, The feel is right. The pricing is right. You're all over the world. You're a wonderful ambassador for South Africa. That's my sort of summation of Hamilton Russell at the moment. And I I honestly, I'm not blowing smoke up your you-know-what. It just is. It just is. And it's just worked. And it's brilliant. And so congratulations. But... You need to be able to tell your story because I think you've got a good one to tell. 
just a quickie for everybody. Anthony's nobody's slouch either. Um, I thought you were born in Johannesburg, actually, because you went to school in Johannesburg for prep school, I think. Correct. But you were born in Cape Town. Went yeah. to Johannesburg. Don't, don't, don't hold that against me, Carrie. No, I won't. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> I would like to, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Um, because I was born in Johannesburg and I'm a nice person. So <laughs> I, um, I won't hold that against you. Anyway, you went from there to bishops. You then went to Vitz and you studied a very similar degree to what I did. Um, I didn't realize that at the time. Why did you go to Vitz? Why not UCT? Um, well, this is going to be more of a therapy session, but I think when your peer group is in Johannesburg and you go down to boarded bishops, it's not a good move. Unless there's a good water polo teacher. Um, or wasn't she would, there when you were there? Had she been, I would have been one of the boys that would have been overlooked. <laughs> so. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. so, so basically, I think it was a question of trying to revert to where I'd been happy as a child. And, and Vitz over UCT seems a silly choice when it comes to lifestyle issues at that time. But we loved Vitz. I mean, Vitz was just the best. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I, I didn't so much. Um, I, I thought it was an incredible university. I thought we had mm. some incredible academics. It was on the cutting edge of research in the fields that I was studying. Mm. But uh, the, the campus life was very um, dissipated in comparison to, say, a Stellenbosch University. Or yeah, University. yes, and yes. So you had to have a personal life beyond campus or it was it was less. Yes. So, but I think it, it was really, truly a world-class university. Oh, and, yes, uh, Probably at my time and your time, it was also on the cutting edge of the, uh, the resistance to the, the, the latter days of apartheid. And yes. Consciences were raw. Um, mm. That spilled onto campus. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, that might have disrupted a little bit of education but it also gave us a perspective that was very valuable. Absolutely invaluable. Um, you went from there to Oxford, which was extremely privileged. You privileged little baby boomer. <laughs> and <laughs> you studied. You did a master's in geography. Why yes. geography? Uh, because it was easy to get into. Um, <laughs> I, was know, that for I the stupid people? <laughs> In this day and age of being able to access any deep information with your cell phone, the true life skills that are most valuable are an ability to draw insights from the synthesis of relatively superficial information across a lot of different practices. Mm -hmm. And geography is basically that. Um, it is what they'd call a synthetic subject. Yeah, um, But the main reason I did it was no insight into that, just simply it was easier to get into, and I could drop one whole year of university and still get my degree because of a mild degree of overlap with biological science. I was going to say, they must have given you some credits of sorts, hey? Yes. Because you only did it for two years. So you did that, which I'm sure stood you in good stead or has stood you in good stead for the farming that you've done at Hamilton Russell. Because um, whether we like it or not, geography does play quite a big part in, in wine farming. Yes. And then you went and did something more, something further in America. I did. I first worked for two years for an investment bank, and you would have watched Wolf of Wall Street and been appalled at the 1980s. It was one of my favorite movies. I loved it. Well... <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah, I, I can think it's favorite unless you some of the characters in it. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, it, it, it really was a time of massive excess and machismo in that industry. And I was on the conservative side of it, so I didn't see all of that. But it was a time of just glorious overexpenditure and the feeling that the world was only going one way and that was up. And mm. then the 87 crash happened. So as for being on campus at WITS and feeling that the country was in reasonable shape and just realizing 
with the protests and the student consciences and the riot police and the dogs on campus, that all was not well. Um, one got, I was lucky enough to be in investment banking to see the peak of that excess and then the mass. I know, it was complete hedonism. It was complete hedonism. Okay. It was overt spending, which is pretty much what we're seeing at the moment. There's a lot of overt consumerism going on in South Africa at the moment anyway. I mean, yes. I, I just, I was at the Saxon for your thing the other day and then I was there again for lunch on Saturday. Yeah. And just rows and rows of Bentleys and, you know, motor cars that are all in excess of two million rand a yes. motor car. It's overt consumerism that we're, that we're seeing in South Africa now anyway. And I it's, think across the world, really, it's, those people who there's, can. There's a little bit of, um, and I, I think what was nice to also cut my teeth academically after a business degree in America in the 90s, there was a much more sober, less um, sort of consumeristic attitude to life. Mm. So I got the peak of the 80s, and then I got this slightly more sober, show-off, a little bit less 90s. And um, yes. I, I think there is a, an element in many societies of, there we say, fiddling while Rome burns. It's, <laughs> it's a little bit, you know, take, take advantage of everything when it's there, just go for it. It might not be there the next day. Let's just grab while we can. And mm -hmm. um, that is so opposite to the attitude that farming requires, where you're doing things for the following generation and the generation mm -hmm. after. It's mm -hmm. very much not take what you can while you can. And the great yeah. thing also about farming is all your wealth is in a piece of ground that you, over your dead body, would you want to sell it. So, in other words, it's like having massive amount, or well, not a massive, but a decent amount of money that you essentially can't spend um, because you can't just say, all right, I'm going to sell off uh, 20 square meters of my property <laughs> so I can go on holiday in Greece. <laughs> Why ever not? Why ever not? And it's a bit like, you know, it's a terrible analogy, but it's a, it's, it's a bit, it's so emotionally important to you, your land. You know, it's, it's almost like saying, okay, my child's got two hands. I can spare one of them. You know, somebody needs a mm. hand transplant or something. Let's lop <laughs> one of those things off. You know, the, <laughs> it just, it's your child. And, you know, I know. But you know what? A wise person once told me yeah. that you must never, ever count the place you live in or on as an asset. So sadly that's for very, you. That's a very, um, because I did buy in London at a time when it was very good to buy property. And during the time I was working there, that value rose astronomically and everyone felt suddenly incredibly wealthy. And, and you know, being me and South African, I just multiplied by the exchange rate and realized what I could do with that in South <laughs> Africa. Yeah. And sure as hell, when I decided to return to South Africa, the property market had crashed to the point where some people were happy to hand their keys back to the mortgage company as long as they didn't owe anything more. And mm. um, so, and I, exactly as you said, I had the thing is the home that you live in should never be seen as an asset. It's no. an emotional connection and mm. should not be seen as a store of wealth. It's a place Absolutely. that you live in. And the same as a farm. It's like a family member. It's like a child. It's like a spouse. It's like a parent. Mm. It's not something you put a commercial value on. It's something you put an emotional value on. Yes, absolutely. So having sort of set the scene for how much we love Hamilton Russell, because I'll just say it all loudly for everybody to hear, you didn't inherit your family farm. You bought your family farm from your, from your dad, from what I remember, which is, what's the word for that, Ant? Lucky. It's um, it's what? <laughs> Lucky is the word. <laughs> it's not. It's it's <clears throat> highly sort of recommended because it it's made it's made sure that you you didn't have that sense of entitlement, um, and you've made it all work for you. But anyway, we you and I are becoming terribly, terribly deep 
that wasn't the intention. I just wanted everybody to know that you didn't, as, as baby boomer as we are, we both, I think, worked quite hard for what we had or have got in our lives. Didn't take anything for free. For free. I'd be in trouble for that, for nothing. Yeah. Um, so you bought in 1994? 94. You bought Hamilton I Russell. Over, I took over in 91, but I, you know... Uh, the, the thing I just never wanted to look like, because if you come back to South Africa with an English accent and, you know, two suits uh, <laughs> from London. You can, yeah, from Savile Row, yeah. <laughs> you, 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 well, no, unfortunately not. Somewhere much less expensive. But, but you can come across as, um, you know, by mistake, you can come across as arrogant and standoffish. And, and that very much is not the case. When I returned to Hamilton Russell Vineyards, as a 29-year-old, I was being paid more in London than the total turnover of Hamilton Russell Vineyards. And this is not because my father was bad at what he did. He did it for reasons of passion, not finance. Uh, he didn't never expected to or wanted to make money. He wanted to make money out of it, but he never really expected to. It was a passion project fueled by his very successful career in advertising. Mm. And, um, you know, I've lived on the farm now 32 years. He spent a total of one year of his life living on the farm. So it's, it's a very Really? Only one day. year? Uh, pretty much. And then if, I don't know what the cumulative holidays in the house before I built my home on it. I don't know what they amounted to. But it was an enormously successful and timely and brave passion project that was not required to make money given his other income. Yeah. Whereas when I came back, I had nothing. So mm. this had to be my sole means of income. And if I was going to school my children, travel the world, um, like you, I'm an esthete. I like things. I like beauty. And that <laughs> comes with a price. I'm <laughs> certainly so, it does. It was a requirement to do well. And I think in a lot of the wine industry, people who say it's a business, you start with a large fortune, end with a small fortune. People love saying that. But there are an awful lot of successful and thriving and surviving South African mm. wine businesses out there because it is people's sole means of income. And yeah. they do what they need to do to make it work. And a lot of that is just very, very hard work. Well, it's like any, it's like any business of your own that you start. You know, yes. why should farming be any different? The only thing is maybe you're dependent upon, you know, at the mercy of, God Almighty, whoever it is who orchestrates the geography of your space. But that's what it is. Your father planted Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Was that at whose advice? Was it something that he really wanted to do himself? Or did somebody look at the soils and say, these are the two great varietals that you must put in, in Hermanus? What did, how did that happen? Well, I think most ventures are viewed retrospectively when they're successful. And insight is assigned to what they eventually end up doing. In the case of Hamilton Russell Vineyards, it was very much more about finding, well, A, something my father could easily afford that he had emotional connection to, and Hermanus had been the family holiday place for my grandfather's time in the 30s. So there was an enormous emotional connection. My father did look in Stellenbosch first. Marathi was his target. Oh, really? Yeah, a beautiful farm. I remember going there as a teenager to have tea with Anna-Marie Carnitz, um, who was the, at that point, fairly old chatelaine of the property uh, mm. that it had such a reputation for <clears throat> being open socially and having this wonderful faded charm and beauty. And... We're sitting there with our fine bone china teacups, you know, as teenagers worried about breaking them or rattling them on the tea, tea uh, on the saucer. And she didn't want to sell it to him. She wanted it to go back into the milk family, which I admire. Yeah. Before. And yes. it also was a little expensive. The other farms were a bit expensive. And it was Desert Pongratz of, you know, his fame. Yes. Um, who was doing some work at the time with the Bachelder, I think, or my father got the introduction via advertising, and he became something of a wine mentor to my father and suggested he look further afield at different places, even though the time was illegal to make wine there because it lacked quota. And 
My father's passion at the time was collecting Bordeaux. So uh, Bordeaux was a, a, a Cabernet blend, was very much part of the initial plan, along with other things. It was basically, let's plant the noble varieties. Other mm, than Make a nice claret. Yeah, well, that as well as a Pinot Noir. But I can honestly say that Dezo, as a, um, a viticulturalist, really, first and foremost, was the one with the bee in his bonnet about the Pinot, little more than my father at that time. And it's probably thanks to him that so much Pinot Noir initially was planted, along with the other varieties. Mm. And Dezo was right, not because of the temperature, which is what he was looking at, but because of the accidental planting of old sheep and wheat farming soil with the same clay content as the Cote de Nuit in Burgundy. Mm. And I've got wonderful pictures of him digging holes with my father and looking at it. And it wasn't about, oh, we found clay. We can make Pinot Noir in a more structured, savory, spicy style. It was, yes, I think the vines will grow here. (laughs) But, you know, uh, what I was going to ask you is, uh, we all know that that Burgundy... um, has got 200 million year old soils that are basically limestone clay rich soils. Yes. Do you have limestone in Hermanus? Is, we don't. Is, and we don't. And their soils are much younger than that. Um, they were under sea not all that long ago, hence the limestone and the sh- fossilized shells you find in the Yes. Bed. And um, also, um, they were under ice at the peak of the last ice age. Um, whereas Amazing. our soils have been on the surface for 230 million years and, the, and, and the, mm. the shale that is their foundation was laid down 400 million years ago. It doesn't make better wine. It's just much, much older soil. Mm. And um, I think that is one of the key, key factors for the style of Pinot Noir we make. More than cleverness in the cellar, more than focus that I introduced back in the early 90s just on Pinot and Chardonnay and nothing else. And, and more than anything, temperature, everything. It's mm. that soil that was traditionally reserved for sheep and wheat farming that was accidentally planted with yes. Pinot and Chardonnay along with other varieties because that was the soil on the farm. And the advice at that time was nothing to do with this style or that style depending on the soil. It was all to do with temperature, latitude, Clone, well, not even clone back then, but, you know, wine. Yes. The other thing, of course, for me, and and I have spent a lot of time studying viticulture, and that is my passion. I love the plants, and I love the vines, and I love, I love that part of the wine story. But yours is such a special microclimate, and I, I think it must be one of the vineyards closest to the sea, in South Africa at this stage of the game. Yes. And of course you're right there where there's a there's a whole load of currents and stuff happening in the sea where there's the Benguela and the Agalus and what have you. And there's a whole swirl that goes around in your basin, which is the Hemel and Arda Valley. And I think that plays an enormous part when it comes to the overall savoriness um, of your wine in the bottle, which is how it should be. It should be sweet, ripe fruit with a savory finish, which is exactly what it is. And I, I think it's because of your climate and your soil. You're, you're right. I think the soil probably, to me, almost plays center stage. Mm. Uh, it's very rare to find clay as close to the sea. Mm. If you go down to a gallus and area, you know well. Yeah. Um, you have a wind issue because you don't have that little range that we have between us and the ocean. And also, the closer to the sea you are, the more sandy the soil becomes, the mm. lighter structured it becomes. Mm. We have this deposit of shale. Um, well, our closest point on the farm is 1,500 meters from the ocean. Mm. And the other big benefit is that the prevailing summer wind is off the bay and that cold bank gorilla current you correctly mentioned, which Mm. is so vital. Mm. So we have this natural air conditioning system. If, as you're Friars Cove or one of those places on the West Coast, remarkably close to the sea, your summer wind is blowing over land before it crosses your vineyards. Heating it up by the the time it gets there, yeah. It's warmer. 
<clears throat> the winter wind is coming off the ocean. So that's that's one of the benefits from a temperature point of view. But I I, I would like to think we, we're very similar to Burgundy temperature-wise. In fact, mm. we're cooler during too hot. Are months. you? Yes, mm. very much so. Mm. Um, but they're a little cooler in the first of the four crucial months and a little cooler in the last of them, a lot warmer in the middle two. If, if you're in that high latitude, you, you simply have to have, you get longer sunshine hours, but you, you need that short, sharp burst to make sure things ripen. Whereas mm. where we are, we can pretty much take ripening for granted. We don't get the diurnal fluctuation. We get warmer winters, warmer nights, but much cooler days. And, and that's the benefit of the maritime climate. And, and how, how involved are you in the actual winemaking process? Do you help Emil? I, yes, Emil is, uh, as you know, you've met him. And I think he's I love him very, very well when you said there doesn't seem to be an ego in the way. And um, no. as you know, you look at a beautiful building somewhere Everyone praises the architect. No one talks about the builder or the electrician mm. or the financier or the project yeah. manager. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 100%. But, yeah, someone can, you know, I don't see the winemaker as the architect ever. I see the winemaker mm. as the builder. And Yeah, uh, he's the chef. You know, he's and, the bloke in well, the kitchen. A chef sometimes, you know, sources their own ingredients, designs their own menu, um, does all of that. So a, a chef, poor chefs have a harvest every day. <laughs> no, maybe the winemaker is, is the plasterer or the electrician or, I, or I the would, contractor. Well, some people rather rudely say plumber, which I think <laughs> is not fair. But I I think you get different properties. Let's take Evan Sadi. Evan Sadi to me is the architect, the financier, the strategist, the marketeer, and all of it. And you get other properties where somebody, let's say, working for a bigger operation, are basically processing what comes in regardless. Mm. And what we have on Hamilton Russell Vineyards that I think is so powerful is a very small and very close working team, each mm. doing what we do best. And if I'm involved in winemaking, it's not to say, I think you should raise the final fermentation temperature 1% or yeah. I think it's time now to do another punch down. It's none of that because Emil is fantastic. It's more setting the aesthetic direction yeah. because you can, you can head in different directions and it's understanding the whole world and where you're going to be true to yourselves, even if it's going against the grain locally or in America or in England or parts of Europe. You do what your terroir does best, mm. and you work together with the winemaker to be sure that you are all honoring the property and not your own egos. And mm. I think Emil has just been the most fantastic team player, along with a very gifted winemaker. So he's been, he's, been he's just a little cutie pie. <clears throat> and as I say, I love the lack of drama, <clears throat> and I love the lack of. Um, I mean myself. He's just. I love that you're smoking cigars while you're talking to me. What are you drinking? Pinot Noir. <laughs> you know what? <clears throat> Never ever smoke a cigar with a fine wine because immediately you get rid of the fine aromatics. You change. I know, the but it's so nice. Um, it is nice, and people say brandy, port, and all of that. But quite honestly, the best thing with a cigar is old Chardonnay. Oh, Very gosh. old Chardonnay, because what it, the cigar does is make the, the whole thing seem a bit leaner and more edgy, and it almost freshens up the aromatic profile. But for a young red wine like our 22 Pinot Noir, it, it just Does kill it it, a bit. Removes, it removes some of the texture and all the fine fruit perfume. So it's, mm. it's not a good thing to do. I but think I we should encourage love, it. We should encourage it anyway. <laughs> It's it's like having two children that really don't get on, but you love them both. I you know. You insist on you, spending time, the three of you. And you put them in the bath together. Yeah, you do. <laughs> well, yes, I think <laughs> I'm so pleased. It is Friday. We're allowed to be doing that. I should be doing that. Caleb, why haven't I got a cigar and a glass of wine on my barrel? 
<laughs> and um, one of the secrets of your success, one of the many, I think, is that you stuck to your knitting. You've never gone and planted a whole load of millions of other cultivars on your property. Uh, if you wanted to do that, you bought a separate property and did something like that, which we're not going to speak about because I'm just speaking to you about Hamilton Russell today. Um, I have got loads of questions to ask you about the others, but I'm not going to do that today. So one of the many secrets of your success is that you did stick to your knitting. You've got Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and that's that. Um, and you make them really, really well. I just wanted to tell everybody that you haven't only done that here. You and Oliver and Emil jumped on a plane and went and did the same kind of thing in Oregon. Talk to me about that quickly. Well, we not only make just one Pinot and Chardonnay, we don't make reserves or second labels. Mm. And the Pinot and Chardonnay are much less Pinot and Chardonnay than they are the most beautiful possible expression of this land that we have the privilege of owning. Mm. So one grape that comes from somewhere else would make us more money. We could buy Chardonnay from Elgin. We could bulk it up. We could have a non-estate Chardonnay. And a lot of people wouldn't notice the difference, and we could make a lot of money. But Some people would. That's the day it loses its beauty for me. Mm. And, um, and, and it's a silly business to be in at the best of times. Um, you want to make enough money to carry on with it, but it really is not the best way of making money. So the only reason to do it and to throw your life at it is it's got to feel good for you. And the Oregon thing was very much that America is a crucial market for us. Mm. And um, we've built such good distribution. I've been there at least once or twice a year for 32 years. And mm. I went to business school there. I've got lots of friends. And just being there is so expensive on the South African rand that if you don't have mm. enough wine, and we don't buy in grapes, we can't just say, let's make more Pinot next year because there's demand. It depends on our replanting schedule and our, you know, the vagaries of mm. nature. So we thought if we make wine in Oregon, Emil is at a quiet time. He gets the stimulation of two harvests a year. We have enough contacts and friends to go straight in and buy from the Grand Cru sites. And we sell it all in America, all through our distribution. And that immediately justifies being in America for more of the year. Mm. And it's, it's worked so far. The first vintage was 2018. Oliver's going to go over with Emil and work the fifth vintage, <clears throat> the 2023. And, um, and she's really taken it under her wing and is very thrilled about the idea of building that business. And it's done incredibly well, luckily. And it's very cheeky for a small South African producer near the southern tip of one of the less important continents in the world. (laughs) One of the least sort of popular at the moment as well. The world's biggest economy in an area that's booming and go and take them on at a high price point. And it's worked. I mean, I've been going to Oregon since the early 90s, and I've just seen this fabulous growth and interest and interest from the French and from sommeliers. And it unquestionably, unquestionably is the center of fine Pinot Noir production in the U.S. Really? And our, without doubt, and our... Well, I know Joseph Juan has got, I think, Jabli, I think all, uh, most of the large Burgundian producers yeah. have gone there, there, haven't they? Some that are not that large. I mean, Mayo Camazé has their, Jadot has their, mm. um, Durand famously in the first... Henriot Champagne bought into Ponzi, which has now been bought by Bollinger. Yes, um, I saw. You know, worldwide, people are realizing that the, the quality for cost of land and production in Oregon for Pinot, and, and our bet was Chardonnay. I remember when we first went there, it was um, Pinot Gris or Riesling as the white yeah. wine signature. We yeah. took a big bet on it being Chardonnay, and it's it's become Chardonnay. There's no doubt, no question of a doubt, no shadow of a doubt. Yeah. And is there any is there any grave danger of of you sharing a bottle of that with me the next time you come and stay with me in Johannesburg? Well, the grave danger is that we have this beautiful situation of selling it. I don't want any excuses, Anthony. Well, then in that case, there's no grave danger. It will be done. <laughs> Yay. I I stopped you halfway. Everybody is sitting at home saying, Carrie, ask him, why can't we have some in South Africa? 
Everybody well, wants it, some. It would be, it's an $85 bottle mm. of Pinot Noir retail in America. So you can imagine getting it out to South Africa. And, and that's not all that profitable for us. It's remarkable. We probably make more on our wines here than that because the cost base is so high there. Is it? What we pay, what we pay for the grapes would, you know, would, would age somebody 10 years. Yeah. Just <laughs> and, and how do you do that? Does, do you and email go and bid for it? Is it like champagne where you wake up early in the morning and go and bid no. for it? Or do you look after a vineyard the whole year? Well, the, 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 the main thing was it was a very fortuitous, and this I must praise email for. When I had the idea to do it many years ago, um, we tossed up Burgundy, Oregon. Had we done, uh, because Northern Hemisphere uses your winemaker well, um, had Emil gone to, I, I looked at the Sanford and Benedict vineyard very early on and mm. that full on, very ripe, very fleshy style of Pinot just didn't fit with, with our aesthetic. No. And, um, Burgundy, we would have got the lesser grapes from the lesser appellations and been at the back of the queue. So we yeah. would have gone in knowing we were going to make, yes, we could have made perhaps not even better value because of our cost base. We don't, we're not there. We don't own the vineyards. Yeah, um, we would have been at the back of the queue. Oregon, through Emil's relationships with certain people, got us because of his winemaking time that he'd spent around. We got straight into the Grand Cru sites and yeah. got contracts to get those grapes. So he flies Brilliant. over. We buy the grapes, and it's not just any old grapes. It's from certain sites with our defined rows that we chose really? for tone, for aspect, for soil. And, and those are earmarked for us in some sort of longish-term grape contract. And then we rent cellar space, and he makes the wine, and that's done. And Olive and I, when we travel to America, we taste barrel samples. We look at things, any adjustments that are necessary. We have and what's it called? It. Is it called mm. Maple Grove? Hamilton Russell, Oregon. <clears throat> so that's the name of the brand <clears throat> with the same essential look. And then... The Chardonnay is from a, a vineyard called Maple Grove or an area, which is Willamette Valley as an appellation. And the Pinot Noir mm. is from a very famous vineyard called Zena Crown in the Aola Amity. Mm. And we were able, I mean, there are many options to buy grapes there. We honed in on the very best very quickly. And that was, that was the skill that was necessary because we could have wasted years and years and years making in the wrong place. But I think we jumped in fortuitously through relationships, through some degree of insight in exactly the right places. <clears throat> I'm, I'm just unbelievably in awe and so proud of you. I just, your father would have been unbelievably proud of you. You've just done the most amazing job. Thanks, Gary. Anthony, the person, what, um, I think you're about to be a grandpa or have you become a grandpa already? I became, in, in one year I turned 60 I broke my leg skiing and went through an airport in a wheelchair, and I became a grandfather. I mean, that. <laughs> I don't know which is the worst. I think the grandfather bit is the worst bit. <laughs> no, the grandfather was the true, absolute celebration. It made me so happy. And Who had a baby? Olivia. Who had a baby? Ella. Ella. One of oh, my did Ella have? Okay. Yes. Yeah. And so, so next week I'll be going to see her. She's at a kind of a day school, so her mum can carry on working. For the first time, and I'm going to go and see her at school. She was born in February the, I should know exactly, I think it's the 7th, but it's, uh, she's a 2023 baby. <clears throat> and she's at so, school already? Let's call it a kind of a preschool. So, <laughs> what, what book lies next to your bed at night? What are you reading at the moment? Well, if you saw me barbecuing, and even saying barbecuing in South Africa is a form of crime, um, it's on the smallest Weber that's available, and I would get beaten up by the industry. And if you re heard what I'm reading, I'd probably get beaten up once more. But I like old novels. I'm reading a Wilkie Collins who wrote, I think this one was written in the 1860s, but set in 1851. It's a wonderful, beautiful language Late I also love them. Um, and it's kind of not a whodunit exactly, but it's a kind of a, 
uh, it's not really crime, but it's in that direction. But I love it. Yes. I've, and I, because I've read all the Steinbecks, which I adore, and the Hemingways. I love Steinbeck. Yeah, me too. Steinbeck's probably my absolute favorite. And I've just discovered one book that I haven't read called Sweet Thursday, which I'm I've got Sweet Thursday in my bookshelf at home. It's lovely. Well You'll done. love it. I will. And I, I just love the language. And for a book to appeal to me, it's got to be, I'm very direct, you're very direct. If we want to swear, mm. we swear. If we have something on our mind, we say it. Say it. And the beautiful, beautiful thing about old writing is it's said so subtly and indirectly. It's almost like a constant lesson in what I should do. I, I know. I just loved it. And, you know, even if you if you sometimes not reading, sometimes I lie in bed at night and I watch my television and I sort of slide towards the BBC channels and I tune into Midsummer Murders or something. Equally oh, old-fashioned. <laughs> Equally old-fashioned. And they're so vicious. I mean, they were really vicious. They would never, ever have been allowed to get away with it in this day and age where, you know, offense is taken at absolutely everything. But I do. Well, those we, postmodernist writers. We've discussed that because both you and I, my New Year's resolution was to be more to internalize more of my thoughts rather than just express them. <laughs> and well, I think, we I think our that. children would say it's not really internalizing. That's a euphemism. I think Jonathan and, and your girls would all say, just find yourself a filter. Just find a couple of filters. You know, you can't speak without filters. But well, I think know, what we should do is we should yeah. do an interview where we have no filter and we do a completely politically incorrect. Do you think it would yeah, ruin you, our... Gee, and, and you want me to still sell wine? <laughs> <laughs> I think it would ruin us forever. Um, have you still my, got my definition, uh, I might have said it to you, but I, I think the new definition of a friend is someone that you can completely speak your mind with. And as long as mm. they know it's coming from a good place and doesn't mean any harm, and you can say pretty much anything. And you know it's That's never the thing. to get into there's no malice. You see, if there's no malice intended, there's then no it's malice, absolutely fine. You should be able to just speak your mind. And otherwise, how do you grow if not by learning from your friends? You know? exactly. Anthony, have you still got lots of things left on your bucket list? You've done everything. Um, You've ticked the whole boxes. You've done them I, well. I, there are a few things I remember from what people have written that really stick in my mind. And at my age, one of them was Oscar Wilde saying, be careful what you store in your attic. There's not that much space left there. So when we have short-term <laughs> memory de deficit, people have to give up credit. Rubbish, that's, that's called too much. That's or, called Pinot Noir overload. No, I don't think so. I think we've, we remember what's important to us. I think if you were interested in somebody, you would remember every detail about them and never forget it. But you have to clear a bit of stuff in your attic. Attic to, space. To yeah. So that's one thing. And then the other thing, apropos of growing old, that I loved was David Bowie saying, growing old is becoming more the sort of person you always should have been. And 100%. And um, then the third thing that Hemingway said in one of his books, a drunk and not very nice to women and, you know, not everything. Is I loved him. He's a and real a boy. Great writer, a great, great mm -hmm. writer, you know, from a mm -hmm. writing style point of view. But yeah. he basically, and I can't remember how he expressed it, but there's so much that was magic in our youths. There are moments that we remember that gave us just such deep joy. And I'm not talking about first kisses or anything, but, you know. But they were nice. You know, of course. And there's only ever one first kiss, isn't there? <laughs> I know. Only ever one first anything. I know, and 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 usually the first one of those isn't quite as good. <laughs> oh, I know. It's normally a fumble around. It's a mess. I know. I, ch I choose not to remember my first one. We're, we're, it was deeply gonna, embarrassing. We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> no. <laughs> that as we get older and we have time on our hands, we look for all those magic moments of our past that brought us such joy, and we almost try and reinvent them and find them again. And he was basically saying, they're gone. You're not going to get them back. And sometimes at night, and he put it so beautifully, you might dream of them and get something of that beauty. 
but they're gone. And growing old is a process of accepting that, but then to grow old happy, you have to find new things that do things like that. Yes, of course. And, and I was about to say, I'm with you. I'm with you on all of those things. And those that's where I think you... Yeah, we've got be, to put you, time and effort into finding them and doing them. Uh, because You continue. You continue yeah. on your successful trajectory, you personally, because you keep on finding a new first. And I think that's what it is. <laughs> you have to find new firsts for yourself. So maybe tell Olive you're not going to kiss her for two years. And then the next time you do two years later will be the first time in two years. It will be a new first. And maybe your heart goes like that again. Yeah. Well, maybe. You know what? When we have a therapy session together, we can. <laughs> we got all these things. <laughs> Anthony. I, I, the... I'm just thinking I'm not going to kiss you for two years. It's going to go down that well. It's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be popular, I don't think. <laughs> no. I'm going to leave you. I know that you've got. A huge big lunch party at Braemar tomorrow. We do tomorrow, yes. I know that you are in trouble because you should be helping in the kitchen no. or whatever it is that's happening there. I've kept you for an hour or more, I'm sure. It's an absolute privilege to have you in my space for that long, all to myself. I love you. I love your new vintages. Anybody who hasn't tasted the new vintages, are they on the shelf already? They'll be on the shelf, yes, in South Africa. Not every market around the world. There's still some 21s out there, but 22 okay. is the new vintage. Pinot and Chardonnay okay. on the shelf. <clears throat> 2022 Hamilton Russell Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, they're beautiful. They're crafted with love and care and they're classy. They, they're a classic, just like the, their owner. You are one of my favorite people. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, we'll do another have a one great soon. Weekend and lots of love. You too. Bye, Thank you so much. Bye. Bye bye.